You, you know this is a great weekend for many reasons, not because of the time change. I'm, I'm excluding that from the greatness of the weekend. But it's a great weekend. I tell you what, I would get up an hour early any day to hear A Mighty Fortress is Our God and to sing together with the people of God in Christ alone. And that's worth getting up like really early in the morning for. There, there are a couple of really cool things about this weekend too, and I mentioned it in my prayer that this is the first weekend of our Castleton campus. There's an incubator that's just down the street, and God in his grace has given us the opportunity to start another campus to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, so we're really excited about that. And it also happens to be the last day of Think 17, and I have mixed feelings about that. It's been a great weekend. Many of you have been here this weekend as we have commemorated and thought about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And even this morning, we sang some of the, the songs that would reflect the solas or the aspects of that Reformation. It's just been a phenomenal weekend that God has really blessed. We've been excited about that. And this morning, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who has, we've given him a really good workout this weekend, and he's just been, he's been a trooper, and he's been a minister of God's grace to us. He ministered for 36 years at the historic Moody Church in Chicago that probably many of you have gone to. Many of us have heard him on the radio. Many of us have read his books, and God brought him to us to minister to us this weekend, and I said in the first service, and I'll say in the next service, the thing I love about him is he loves God. He, he desires the supremacy of Christ and we love that about him, and he also loves the Church of Jesus Christ. So, Dr. Lutzer, thanks so much for being here, and we look forward to your ministry this morning. Well, I think somewhere in the New Testament it says that Jesus sat down and taught them. <laughs> and I'm a follower of Jesus. Amen? Amen? I'll tell you, you folks, uh, is that all right, Joe? You know, Joe talks about, oh, I like to get up early in the morning. Yesterday he talked about the sunrise. Listen, if God wanted me to see the sunrise, he'd have scheduled it later in the day, all right? <laughs> and you know, this business of daylight saving time, true story, a woman in Dallas, I remember when I was there, wrote a letter to the newspaper complaining about the time change, saying that the extra hour of sunlight was going to hurt her garden. <clears throat> Some of you actually need to think about that. You know, I, I love this church, um, and, and your pastor... You know, if I lived here in the area, he and I would be good friends. I'd meet with him as often as I could to learn from him, his vision, what's going on here, the music, God honoring. I hope that you appreciate your staff and uh, let them know that, absolutely. And of course, I come from Chicago, the city of righteousness and love. And or there are only two kinds of people, the quick and the dead. <laughs> you know, uh, in Chicago, there was a couple that was out for their 40th wedding anniversary. Each was 60 years old. An angel appeared to them and said, what would you like for your anniversary? The wife said, I've never traveled 
loved to travel, the angel flashed a sword, and instantly in her hand were two tickets for a world tour. It was the man's turn. He took the angel aside and said, you know, I'd really like to be married to somebody who's 30 years younger than I am. And the angel flashed his sword, and instantly the man was 90 years old. <laughs> when you ask God for something, be very specific. What a delight it's been here for me to talk about the Reformation. You know that it is the 500th anniversary, 1517, 2017. And uh, we sang the solas today. Sola in Latin means alone. And so it is sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola de Gloria, the glory of God alone, and today I'm going to speak about sola fide, faith alone, but before I do, I want to say a word about sola scriptura. When Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door, they were in Latin, but translated into German, sent throughout Germany and all of the Germans, and I noticed that this battery pack here has just fallen down. That's the good thing about technology. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll do something with it. It obviously, I remember a Sunday school teacher who said that my teacher is wired for sound. Uh, I wonder if somebody back there would wire me for sound. All right, don't be distracted now. <laughs> don't be distracted. This is going to come off a lot better. Yeah, just put it in my pocket. I uh, heard about a man who was the laziest man in the world, and he won $1,000, and he was there on the beach, and uh, somebody said, you've just won $1,000 for being the laziest man in the world. He said, just roll me over and put it in my back pocket. <laughs> so that's what somebody back here has done. They've put it in my back pocket, and my wallet is so thin that it actually fits in the same pocket. So when Luther did that, he entered into debates, for example, in Augsburg. And, and the Pope sent, Pope Leo sent a man by the name of Cajetan to get Luther to recant. He wanted one word from Luther, and that is recant. But Luther wouldn't recant, and here was the debate. What is their source of authority? The church was saying church tradition. For example, the church believed in the merit of the saints. In other words, the treasury of merit was this, that some ministers, some people, particularly the Virgin Mary, did more good than she had to to get to heaven, and you can draw on that. If you see a relic, if you pay some money, you can have some of her righteousness credited to you. Luther said, where's that in the Bible? Well, Cajetan says it doesn't have to be in the Bible. It's the tradition of the church. Whatever the Pope says, the Pope approved it, and that's the source of authority. And that over and over again in the Reformation became the issue. Where's prayers to Mary? Well, it's not in the Bible. There's nothing that says we should pray to dead people like saints. Well, it doesn't have to be in the Bible, Cajetan says. It's the tradition of the church. And Luther kept coming back to this sola scriptura. And that's one of the principles of the Reformation. But today I'm going to speak to you about sola fide, faith alone. Now, some of you who are at the conference, you heard a little bit about this, but I'm going to end up talking about the characteristics of saving faith. 
Here's Luther, he's seeking salvation in a monastery. And the church said, take, take advantage of the disciplines of the church. So Luther sometimes begged until uh, he was weary and sometimes fasted so long that people thought he would die. And then, of course, he slept on the floor, and I've been in the monastery there where he slept on, on hard stone floor without blankets to mortify the flesh to somehow make himself good enough to receive the grace of God because the church said, yeah, we're, we're into grace. God, God saves us by grace, but we have to become worthy of the grace. The question is how. Confession was of some solace to him. But sometimes he confessed his sins up to six hours at a time until Staupitz, his confessor, became weary and said, Luther, the next time you come, don't confess all these little sins, these little peccadillos. Confess something serious like murder and adultery, but not all these little sins. But Luther knew the issue was not whether the sin was big or little. He understood that the smallest smidgen of sin would drive you away from God forever. So the question is, was it forgiven? But do you understand his dilemma? Sins in order to be forgiven, had to be had, in order to be confessed, had to be remembered. If they weren't remembered, they were not confessed. And if they were not confessed, they were not forgiven. And even if he remembered them all, tomorrow was another day with new sins. And if you're here today as a Catholic, I want you to know that you are welcome here. And, and uh, I delight in that. Ca uh, Chicago's a very Catholic city, so we're, we're acquainted at the Moody Church with many different people coming. But I have to tell you that a Catholic did once say to me, I hope I don't die on Wednesday, because Sunday the Mass takes care of past sins, but tomorrow's sins, what about those? And then I have to wait until the next time when my sins are taken away in confession. I never have the assurance because the future is unknown. And then Luther, of course, began to teach the Bible. You probably know that in the little town of Wittenberg, Germany, where there was a new university that was beginning. And he came to the book of Romans. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 1, and then we're going to be looking at chapter 3 briefly. Now, I know that you have your cell phones and you have your iPads and, oh, God knows what else, technology. And so I understand that. Turn to this passage no matter which way you want to, but for the benefit of the young people. All right, young people, would you look up here for a moment? This actually is a Bible. Do you see this? <laughs> you see this? And he came to verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther said, day and night I pondered the connection between faith and the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God? That's what terrified him. He said, Later, love God, I hated him. He's too holy. See, the problem is if he wasn't so holy, we could appease him more easily. But he has a high standard, and nobody knows exactly how high that standard is. And so Luther struggled, but he saw something. That the book of Romans taught that righteousness was not only an attribute of God, but righteousness is a gift of God given to those who believe. The book of Romans talks about the gift of righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed to us by faith. 
And when he said he understood that he could receive the righteousness of God as a gift, it changed everything. That was his conversion. He said it was as if I went through the gates of paradise. Because now the issue was not whether or not he had done enough, but Jesus did it all. And by the way, did you know that you have to be perfect to enter into heaven? You wives, I'm now giving you permission to look at your husband and whisper to him, you're in trouble, all right? <laughs> but of course you have to be as perfect as God. So are you as perfect as God? I don't think so. How do we become as perfect as God? We have the perfection of Christ credited to us by faith. And we learned in the previous times that I've been here that saying amen here is legal. I checked with Pastor Mark and he said, absolutely, it's legal. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 3. I want you to see something so that I can give you three characteristics of the righteousness of God and then we're going to talk about saving faith, sola fide. You'll notice that the scripture was read to us that um, there's no distinction. The righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifest apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Did you know that all those ceremonies in the Old Testament, what in the world was going on? God was giving the people a way to communicate with him without himself being contaminated. It was not a permanent way, but God was illustrating the need for him to be totally untainted by sin and yet have fellowship with sinners. Oh, we'll find out how that happens. What a passage this is. The righteousness of God through faith, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Boy, underline that. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by faith in his blood. Why did God put forward Jesus? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over for uh, former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. That was for emphasis. This, uh, this equipment here continues to, maybe it was incompatible with all the money in my wallet. Thank you so much. We'll get it figured out. By the third service, we'll have it all worked out. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope that it, shove it somewhere where it will. <laughs> All right. There. All right. It's now on my belt. Good. All this is only to gain your attention. It was ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. You know, a little bit of Calvinism thrown in here is a good time to do it. All right. So. The point is simply this, that the Apostle Paul is saying this. Now think about this. There were some atheists that wrote a tract in which they said, you know, in the Old Testament, God had fellowship with Abraham. Abraham lied. So God has a liar, and Abraham is called a friend of God. Isn't that nice? So what does that say about God? David committed murder and adultery, and David is a man after God's own heart. Wow, what kind of people does God hang out with? If a person is known by his friends, what does this say about God? The atheists had a point. 
Here God was having fellowship with these people and their sin was not permanently taken away. So what Paul is saying is in the forbearance of God, God overlooked their sin. They were saved on credit. You've bought something on credit. You you use a credit card, you take it home, and then you pay it later. God says, look, I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to set it aside. I'm going to put it on a shelf and someday Jesus is going to come and take away that sin. So on that basis, I will have fellowship with the likes of Abraham and David. And so what Paul is saying is God put forth Christ to be a propitiation, that is to be a satisfaction for sin so that God would vindicate his name so that he could be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus so that God's holiness is not compromised when he has fellowship with us because the payment for sin has been made. That is an amen. Now, here's what we're going to do. I want to be clear. I'm going to give you three characteristics of the righteousness of God and then we're going to talk about saving faith. Of course God wants you to take notes. I mean, you were given booklets, at least we were during the time, you know, and, and you folks who are sitting in the front, I want you to know that in heaven, your crown is going to be so heavy that your head will be tilted. Thank you. Three characteristics of the righteousness of God. Number one, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. Because you'll notice it says... I'm now in verse 27 and 28, that by the righteousness of the law is no man justified. Verse 29, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And what did it say? It says that God justified us as a gift. Do you realize what that means? The righteousness of God, you can't add to it to make it better. You can't subtract from it to make it worse. It is a righteousness as a free gift. In fact, in chapter 5, it says it again. It talks about the free gift of righteousness. It's not something that you work for. It's something that you receive that has been done for you. It is a free gift. Secondly, it is a perfect righteousness. It is a perfect righteousness because, after all, it is God's righteousness and not your own. It is God's. And you know what this means? Everybody gets the same righteousness. Your pastor there, Pastor Mark, who I'm sure goes to heaven every evening and returns in the morning, is that right? (laughs) He gets the same righteousness as the rest of us, people that we've never heard of. And, and, And the exciting thing is this resulted, of course, in the priesthood of the believer. Now anybody can come to God through Jesus and receive the same welcome as as a priest or the most holy person that you can think of. Because we receive the same gift of righteousness. Billy Graham received the same gift of righteousness as you do. In fact, do you know that today, here this morning, if the truth were known, there are some of you who have committed some very big sins. In fact, there may be some who've done some very criminal things. And you're sitting there and you're saying, I wonder whether or not I can be forgiven. You don't know me. No, I don't, but listen. I had a man write to me from prison and says, I have violated four women, ruined their lives. Can I be forgiven? There was something within me that made me want to say, no, you should go to hell. But then I realized that I should too because we're all sinners. 
And I wrote back to him, and this was my answer. I want you to visualize two trails. One trail is very messy with deep ruts that go into the ditch. It's ugly. And some of you have a past that is just like that. And then on the other hand, there's another trail, and it is nicely traveled and well-kept with little flowers along the edge. When two feet of snow fall, you can't tell the difference between this trail and that trail because the trail that has all the ugly ruts, it receives the very same snow. It is covered just as well as the good trail. God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That man sitting in prison can be forgiven, justified, declared righteous by a holy God, and someday welcomed into heaven as if he were Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. It is true that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. So it is a righteous, it is a free gift, it is a perfect righteousness. It's a permanent righteousness. It's a permanent righteousness. Was Luther saved when he was confessing his sins in the monastery? Of course not. He didn't understand the gospel. And there are millions of people who are going to confess their sins today in church, and they will leave without any assurance that they permanently have eternal life because tomorrow's another day. It's like mopping up the floor with a faucet running. Tomorrow is another day with brand new sins. When Luther understood that the righteousness of God is a gift, it is a permanent righteousness. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that God has perfected forever those who believe. Perfected forever. Luther said, now I know it can take me from this life all the way to heaven and I can be welcomed into heaven as if I am Jesus. No purgatory needed, no intermediate time to try to get purged, to go, be good enough to enter into heaven. Jesus gives you the goodness that you need to enter, and he'll be there to say welcome. That's the righteousness of God as a gift given to those who believe. Now, in other words, 24 hours a day, God demands perfection if you're going to be his child. 24 hours a day, Jesus supplies what God demands. There was a previous philosopher by the name of Augustine who said, oh God, demand whatever you will, but you supply what you demand. And Luther said, now it doesn't matter how high God's standard is, as long as I don't have to meet it, as long as Jesus met it for me. That's the good news of the gospel. Now what I want to talk to you about is faith. There are many people in our churches today who think they are saved and they aren't. Let me tell you why they think that they are saved. First of all, because um, they prayed a prayer as a child. Now, I want to be very clear and say I believe that children can be saved. Talked to somebody the other day who said that he was saved at the age of two and remembers it. His memory is a lot better than mine. I don't know what I was doing at the age of two, and I can, my mother, if she were alive, would probably say it wasn't all good. So, um, but, but can a child believe? Age five, six, absolutely. Some of, you, some of you believed as children, and it was genuine faith. But I also counsel children who say, you know, 
I, I grew up in the church and my mother and father, they told me I prayed this prayer when I was four or five years old, but I don't have assurance of salvation. My concept is this, you don't know whether or not you understood the gospel. Children are eager to pray a prayer if you want them to, if you say this is the way you go to heaven. But we don't know whether or not there was a work of God in their hearts. So if you don't know what happened back there, don't try to analyze it anymore. Right now, say, I don't know what happened in the past, but right now, I savingly believe on Jesus and receive the gift of righteousness, the gift of eternal life, and I do that right now. And you don't have to analyze all the things that happened in the past. And then there are those who say, well, I was baptized. You know, the liturgy in some churches, with this water I make you a child of God. No. You know, salvation doesn't come through the sacraments. It doesn't come through baptism. Just because you've been baptized as a child does not mean, or as an adult for that matter, does not mean that you have savingly believed the gospel. And there are many people who are deceived today because of that. And then there are those who say, you know, are you saved? Are you a believer? Have you savingly believed? They may say, well, I'm trying to follow Jesus. Well, to use a non-Calvinistic term, good luck. I'm glad that you're trying to follow Jesus. But that's not the way of salvation. You follow Jesus when you believe on him, most assuredly, but that's not how you get saved. Have you ever noticed that when you follow Jesus, you sometimes do it imperfectly? Well, you need to deal with all the issues, and only the gospel can do that. And then here's a way, here's a telltale way to know for certain that someone is not a Christian. And that is if they say, oh, you know, I, uh, I think I'm a Christian, but I think there are other ways to God. No Christian. Whoever understands the gospel would say that. And let me explain why. I've uh, just taken out something here that I'm looking at, and that's why I was a little bit distracted. But here's the deal. Let me tell you why. Because there is no other Savior out there except Jesus. No other religion has a Savior. In 1993, there was the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago. 5,000 delegates from all over the world representing every possible religion, was there for a whole week. There were dozens of seminars, and I was there every day of the week, hobnobbing with uh, Buddhists and Hindus and uh, people uh, uh, from Islam, Muslims. And uh, what I decided to do is, in the area where they had all the propaganda from the different religions, I went on a search for a sinless savior. Let me tell you why, because I'm a sinner. And I can't be saved by another sinner. So I went to the Buddhists and I said, do you have a sinless savior? No, 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 Buddha was enlightened, but, but we don't have anyone who's sinless. I went to the Hindus, no, no, enlightenment. Krishna had enlightenment, but, but he's not a savior. Can he save anybody? Can he save a sinner like me? No. In Islam, I knew that the Quran indicated that Muhammad himself needed forgiveness. No, Muhammad's a prophet but he's not a savior. You mean he can't forgive anybody's sin? No, he can't forgive anybody's sin. Look at me right now. There is nobody out there like Jesus who has the qualities to be a savior, to save us from our sins. Amen. 
Nobody else can scoop you out of your sin, declare you as righteous as he himself is, and present you faultless before the Father. There is nobody out there like Jesus. So the point is, if you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I actually, you know, uh, I, I think other religions are the way to God too. You are not a Christian. You do not understand the gospel. You say, well, the way is very narrow. The way is narrow to be true, but the invitation is to everybody. Now I'm going to give you five characteristics of saving faith. Thank you again for taking notes. Appreciate it. And those of you at the front, God bless you. <laughs> first of all, the first thing is an acknowledgement of personal sin. An acknowledgement of personal sin. You must know that you're a sinner and you actually need a Savior. In some preaching today, people are urged to get saved and they don't even know what they're being saved from or why they need salvation. That's why we need to understand the doctrine of sin and the holiness of God. Now, I like to witness to people, and there was this woman on the plane. She was very, um, what shall we say, uh, very well put together, very stately. She told me, by the way, she didn't believe in hell, and I just smiled and said, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, but did God reveal this to you? No, that's my idea, she said. I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but, but you know... I'm going with Jesus. <laughs> then she, I asked her, do you think that you are ungodly? Would you describe yourself? Oh, she said, of course not. And I said, you know, I feel sorry for you. That means that Jesus didn't die for you. There's no benefit that you can derive from him and his death and resurrection because it says in the Bible that Jesus died for the ungodly. So if you're not ungodly... There's nothing that we can do for you, no help that we can offer you, and Jesus can't even help you if you, you think you're not ungodly. Now, that's a little mean, but, you know, she needed it, let's just say. <laughs> now, Luther said we must first go to hell before we go to heaven. What he meant was, of course, he was going through what is known in German as Anfechtungen, a sense of despair, and, and he meant that you must see yourself as a sinner before you genuinely see that you need a Savior. So, first of all, acknowledgement of personal sin. Secondly, understand that Jesus died. Jesus died and took the wrath of God on your behalf if you believe on him. So you must understand he's the one who paid your debt Paid in full. Now, there's an illustration I like to use. Not sure exactly if it happened, but even if it didn't, it illustrates it. That somebody was driving through a small town on a weekend, got a speeding ticket, and uh, didn't have any money. And so they were brought to court, and the idea is this. You either pay your $100 or you spend the weekend in jail. Well, the person there was without money, comes before the judge, the judge left the bench, took off his robe, went down, put on an ordinary jacket, stood beside the defendant, whipped out his pocket, found $100, laid it down on the table, went back, put on his robe, 
and said, you are going to jail unless you pay $100. Oh, I noticed somebody paid for you. And he took the $100 he had laid, and the person was free. My dear friend, that is the gospel. At Moody Church, I preached a message on whether or not we can sing the words that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And if we understand that it's not God the Father, but God the Son, that is good theology, it is God who paid on behalf of God so that we could be free. And God says that today Jesus paid your debt so you can have fellowship with me and sin can be broken. Third, there's a transfer of trust to Christ alone. A transfer of trust to Christ alone. This is so critical. It isn't so much how much faith you have. It's who you believe in. Entirely Christ. Luther said that those who continue to keep the law and think that they will thereby be saved are more damned than people who are just living in the world not even caring about God because they continue to look to the law, they continue to look to themselves as somehow having a means of salvation when in point of fact, it is Jesus Christ whom we trust to give us the free gift of eternal life, the gift of righteousness. And so it doesn't matter whether your faith is big. Some of you may come and you may have lots of faith. Some of you, very little faith. It can be the size of a grain of mustard seed. That's okay as long as it's directed to Jesus. Some of you perhaps are hearing all this for the first time and you're full of doubts. Hey, come to Jesus with your doubts. I love that song, Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt. Fightings within and fears without. O oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. You come to the one who is able to save you, and you come to that person alone, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. But you come. And so it's a transfer of trust to Christ alone. And you believe in him. That's why one of the solas of the Reformation that we sang about this morning is Christ alone. Now, number four is it is a growing faith. It is a growing faith. When I was a boy, I prayed that Jesus would come into my heart when I was four or five years old, maybe six or seven. And I never felt any different. But until I was 14... I was drinking some water in the old farmhouse in Saskatchewan, Canada, and my parents said, we think it's time that you got saved. I never did ask them, how did they have that perception? But I'll never forget what I said. I said, I've tried it, but it hasn't worked for me. And we went into the living room of this old farmhouse that I visited this past summer, and there in the living room, I knelt on a chair, they knelt at the couch, and they said, you receive Christ by faith whether you feel differently or not. And I received him by faith, and the next day I knew that I knew God. Why? Because of the ministry of the Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I told the people that my mother died at 103, my father at 106, I, when she was in her 90s, I used to phone her every Saturday evening because uh, she prayed a lot for me. 
And I said to her, Mother, are you sure that you're going to heaven? She said, I am so sure that it is as if I am already there. Now, where did that come from? Was it because she studied all the world religions and says, no, no, it's fine to study the world religions and understand why Christianity is totally unique, but that's not why. It's as she walked with God, there was such confidence in her heart born by the Holy Spirit, that she knew, that she knew, that she knew, as the Bible says, these things we write unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is indeed a growing faith. Now, when I preached this message last time, I was walking out, and an 11-year-old girl came to me, and there she had her notebook. She asked me to sign it. I don't know who in the world she is. But she says, Pastor Lutzer, what was number five? She had them all written down. God bless her. God bless her. Well, number five is this, that it results in good deeds. It results in good deeds. Uh, because, you know, uh, God works in our hearts and the Holy Spirit comes in and we're born again and we have the gift of righteousness and now we live differently. I was looking for this bulletin today and I want you to visualize something with me. I want you to visualize that this is actually a book. And uh, let's suppose that there are two books here. There's this book and there's this book. And we look at this book and let's suppose the title is The Life and Times of Erwin Lutzer. So we decide to open it, and oh, there are a lot of nice things, lots of attempts at righteousness, but actually everything that he did was tainted with sin. Uh, he wasn't as good as all the people in church thought he was. <laughs> Does that apply to anybody else or just me? I don't know. <laughs> so we look at it, and uh, at the age of 14, it's as if Jesus had a book here that said The Life and Times of Jesus, and it's as if he said, look, you're receiving me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rip out the pages of my book, and I am going to take them and rip out your pages, and I am putting my pages into your cover. Wow. Now we look at this. The Life and Times of Erwin Lutzer. We open it. It's a life of, wow, total obedience, perfection, holiness, the book is so beautiful that even God adores it. That is the gospel. Don't allow past experiences or bitterness. I was on a plane talking to a man by the name of Jonathan some time ago. Jonathan grew up in the church and he was bitter because of what happened in his life, the abuse and all that. And I tried to get him to see, why don't you come to somebody who loves you, who cares you, who can declare you righteous, and can make something of your life, don't allow these barriers to keep you from coming to the only Savior of the world. Now, I fly quite a bit, and uh, usually I have a ticket, but there are times when I fly standby. And so I go to the woman behind the counter and I say, do you think I'm going to get on? And she says, look, sit down. When I'm finished and when I know, I'll call your name, because I have your name here. Well, fine, but I'm German. How am I going to sit there for that long? So <laughs> I, I go back and say, well, are you sure that, um, are you sure that, uh, am I going to be able to get, sit down? 
But when I have a ticket, I think flying here, mine was um, row 11F, and I see that there on the ticket, 11F. I know that there's a place reserved for me. So now I kick back, and of course, in the airport, I'm watching CNN. I'm trying to figure out what in the world is happening in Washington. Uh, that's uh, something that could be a lifelong task. <laughs> but I'm relaxed, reading the newspaper, talking to my wife. Why? F, 11 F. When you believe on Jesus, there's a room in heaven that has your name. There's only a crown that you are able to wear. And the Bible says that your name was in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, and you are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. All that. And how much does it cost? It's free to those who acknowledge their sinfulness, their need, and trust a qualified Savior who actually can save. Isn't that wonderful? We have a Savior who actually can save. Praise God. Now, have you savingly believed? I'm talking to you as a church member. I'm talking to you as somebody who was brought up in the church. Have you savingly believed on Jesus, or have you just thought that you have? And has the Holy Spirit today showed you your need to put trust in Christ? Even as I pray now, you could believe on him and be saved. You could reach out in faith, come as you are, to be saved. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that it is through faith alone. We thank you it is not as a result of works. Our works are so imperfect. We thank you, Father, that it is indiscriminate. The invitation is to all who would believe, all in whom you have caused the gift of faith to be operated in their lives. So grant them the faith that they need right now to reach out and be saved. Grant them that, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.